Welcome to the Health Deli, your local stop for a fresh take on community health topics. Come on in, grab a number, and let the guys behind the counter, Mark, Ben, and Mike, tell you about today's specials. Hello, everybody, to another fantastic, hopefully, episode of The Health Deli. Uh, this is Ben, and I am here again today with Mike. How you doing, Mike? Doing wonderful. Yourself? Yeah, I'm doing well. I, I saw we were both kind of bopping our heads to this music. I think we're finally getting into a groove of things. Yeah, like, I'm grooving, man. Yeah, and it only took us a season and a half to get here. Can you believe it? I can't believe that we're still here. I, I can't either, in all honesty, but it's been a great ride. Yes, it has. And today we're actually joined by our resident lumberjack, Andrew. Good morning. It's cold out there. That it is. Uh, and speaking of it getting cold out there, we're going to be talking about one of my favorite topics of all time, perhaps. Donuts. And not not donuts. Bacon. But I, I actually don't like bacon. I do like turkey bacon, though. Oh my gosh, are you kidding me? We'll have this, we'll have another episode, Civil War, turkey bacon versus regular bacon in the future. No, even Andrew's like, like, pull that guy off the air, man. Well, yeah, bacon is great, but I got to be for the custard long johns. We're a white cream long john family. Oh, you got to be kidding me. Nobody likes the white cream. Oh, I, I disagree. I, Nobody I, likes custard. I do like the white cream long johns, actually. But Yeah, but you also like um, turkey bacon, so your opinion doesn't count. Ah, fair. Anyway, so the actual topic that we're going to be going into today is all about antibiotics. So we're going to talk a little bit about bacterial infections, the antibiotics we use to treat them. And in particular, we're going to talk about antibiotic overuse and also antibiotic resistance, which is pretty spooky. Do you have any particular thoughts to start the episode with, Mike? Well, you know, since I am trained in infectious diseases, I do appreciate the topic today. Mm -hmm. You know, from the standpoint of antibiotics are only good as long as the bacteria are susceptible to them. And if we overuse the antibiotics, yeah, we might run into you know, the resistance issues and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But the other side of that is as well, antibiotics are associated with side effects, you know, diarrhea, allergic mm -hmm. reactions, a lot of other things. So just using them too much unnecessarily could theoretically be a bad thing. Yeah. And we're definitely going to get into both of those topics in a moment here. Uh, but one thing I do want to just tease the audience with is that it is possible to have a bacteria that's resistant to literally every antibiotic that we have available to us. So this is a very serious topic and also a kind of scary one when you think about it that way. Wow. Should we call it bacterial Zilla? We can, but I don't know if uh, a lot of people will get that reference. It's so, pretty. So when I was a, doing my training <laughs> in mm -hmm. Detroit, uh, one of the guys that I worked with knew that I liked infectious diseases. Okay. And one of the bacteria uh, that we would see a lot, it was Klebsiella pneumoniae. Okay. Uh, causes a lung infection. So he made up a cartoon called Klepsorella ah, pneumoniae. Interesting. And I forgot, I think it was something like the only bacterium with an attitude. <laughs> you should see if you can get that pulled down, like get access from him, and then we can put it on the Facebook page. Sounds good. I'll look for it. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, okay. So before we get into antibiotic use and, you know, antibiotic resistance and all that stuff, I think it'd be good for us to just get some definitions out there, some basic definitions. So Mike, could you kind of tell us like the difference between like a bacteria and a virus and like an antibiotic and antiviral? Because we kind of talk about all these things as like germs, just like in general. So is there like a clear difference between them? Can you just give us a little info on that? Yeah, so bacteria are usually, you know, self-replicating little organisms that can infect people. Um, and they have similarities-ish uh, you know, to our cells, mm -hmm. uh, in terms that they have their own genetic material and they can self, you know, recreate that and create daughter cells. Mm -hmm. Where viruses, on the other hand, even though they can infect humans, they're 
composed of different things. And a lot of times these viruses rely on other host material to actually make daughters or okay. sons. Gotcha. So essentially there are two things that can cause infection inside of us, but they're very, very different from each other. They're made of different things. They replicate in different ways. And so the way that we're going to treat them and manage them is going to be very different. Right. Yeah. And so. Well, because mm -hmm. even with that, you know, some of them have like, you know, the bacteria tend to have, you know, DNA mm -hmm. in them. A lot of viruses have RNA. Uh, you know, the bacteria have certain structures on their, you know, walls mm -hmm. that allow us to detect them and kill them with certain agents mm -hmm. where viruses have different structures and components and stuff like that. So the things that we use, you know, use, you know, for bacteria, not going to be the same things that we might use for a virus. Yeah. You know, I guess it's, you know, you think of if you're cleaning, uh, up a mess, you know, in your kitchen, you don't use the same materials perhaps for bacon grease, cleaning it up off the counter as mm -hmm. you would for, uh, you know, water paint or something like that. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's one thing I do want to clearly lay out here. So we talk about antibiotics a lot just as a society. And we use that to mean like anything that will kill something infecting me. And really what I want to get out to everybody is that an antibiotic only treats bacterial infection. So they only kill bacteria while antivirals are more of what kind of fights off our viruses. And so that's kind of the clear indication I want to make for everybody is that uh, we're going to talk about antibiotics here. So we're only really talking about things that kill bacteria, not viruses. Okay, cool. And so before we kind of get into the problems with using antibiotics, I do want to clearly state that we should use antibiotics when we need them. So let's say your, your son, your daughter has strep throat. So they have a throat and it's a streptococcus, which is a kind of bacteria that's infecting their throat. We should definitely give that person some amoxicillin uh, because we know that that's going to help them get better. And it's also going to prevent them from getting a more serious kind of infection, which could happen. And so we definitely want to treat people that have bacterial infections. But if we overuse our antibiotics, we're going to get some of those things that you talked about a little bit earlier, Mike. You know, we're going to get resistance occurring. We're going to get side effects occurring. And so we really want to pick out what it is or which patients should be getting antibiotics or not. And also, just to kind of clear the air, we're going to talk about some of the bad things with antibiotics, but for the most part, they're pretty well tolerated and they're pretty safe. And so um, I'm going to ask you, Mike, because I know you know the answer to this. Do you know what the main side effect is to like amoxicillin or penicillin? You just want me to say poop, don't you? I do want you to say poop because I know you love saying that. Diarrhea. Yes. Yes. And so that's the main side effect we're going to get with a lot of these antibiotics. For the most part, they are very safe. And so you don't have to be scared about taking antibiotics or having your son or daughter take antibiotics. They are safe and they are, for the most part, very effective. You know, and from a usage standpoint, that can be a double-edged sword. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's great that the patients can tolerate them to take them when they need them. But then also sometimes prescribers go, well, there's no risk at having mm -hmm. to take them because they're so well tolerated. Yep. Yep. And we're definitely going to talk about that kind of uh, language as well. And so the last thing I want to talk about, you know, we have some of these side effects and then we have the antibiotic resistance. And so the CDC, so the Center for Disease Control, they actually put out a threat report every couple of years just talking about. Am I on that report? Yes. You're actually the number one threat, Mike, which is why we have you in this enclosed space that you're not allowed to leave that has padded uh, walls. Oh, I thought the padding was there for another reason, so I didn't hurt myself. No, that is it. That's why. Okay. Yeah, yeah, cool. All right. It's not acoustics or anything. Uh, but according to their most recent threat report, which was in 2019, 
About 2.8 million infections in the past year were due to resistant bacteria. And so that's a pretty large number, right? Yeah. 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 And what, so what does it mean when something's like resistant? Yeah, that's a great question. And so when we say resistant, it really just means there is one class of antibiotic which can normally treat it that can no longer treat it. So it has had some kind of mutation or something's changed in it. So that antibiotic is no longer effective. So we might have other antibiotics that can treat it, but at least one of them we normally use cannot be used anymore. Okay. And that makes it problematic, I, I assume, because you don't know ahead of time sometimes that you can't use an antibiotic because of this resistance, right? Right. Yeah. So we make a lot of assumptions when we use antibiotics in terms of this is probably going to treat the kind of bacteria that's causing your infection, but there could be resistance for sure. And so that's the ultimate kind of scary thing is maybe there's resistance out there that we're not seeing. And eventually it can get to the point where everything's resistant to everything. You know, this, this past week, my wife found a mouse in the garage. Oh. She thought that was the ultimate scary thing. That, I mean, that's fair and understandable, but there might be a couple scarier things in the world. And we're going to talk about not, one of them. Not in her world that day. <laughs> it's all subjective, right? <laughs> it's all about timing. Um, but just to give the folks at home an idea of how resistance occurs, let me just make a very basic scenario for you guys. So let's say we have 10 bacteria. Nine of them are killed by penicillin. One of them is resistant to penicillin. And let's say that's what's in your body right now. So if I give you penicillin, it's going to kill the nine bacteria that are killed by it, but that one resistant one is going to live. And then, you know, our bacteria reproduce on their own. And so that one resistant one is going to keep reproducing. And now you have 10 bacteria that are resistant to penicillin. So that's essentially how resistance spreads. We have this initial mutation that makes one thing resistant. Then we kill all the sensitive stuff. Okay, now we have a bunch of resistant bacteria. Okay, and that's also referred to as a selective pressure, mm -hmm. correct? Because there's something that is making, you know, maybe this mutation that occurred before exposure to an antibiotic or after exposure to the antibiotic. Mm -hmm. Now it's that's pressure that antibiotic is selecting out for that resistant strain that may not have had a fitness advantage or a survival advantage without that pressure, correct? Right, exactly. So it's something that we're doing that's kind of affecting our surroundings, which is something we're really good at as humans, right? <laughs> we do a lot to change our immediate surroundings. And so really just to stress how dangerous or how scary this can be, um, I want to talk about what's called the post-antibiotic era. So Mike, I want to ask you, do you remember when penicillin was invented? Um, yes, <laughs> I, I do. Well, not, I wasn't there that day, mm -hmm. you know, but there was like the whole experiments with, you know, Alfred Chain and all those guys where they, you know, had the antibiotic. Do you even know the story of the Oxford Bobby? Uh, I don't know anyone named Bobby, no. Well, except our provost. Um, <laughs> but, uh, so this, um, policeman in, uh, England, mm -hmm. uh, got a skin infection. Okay. And the nurse taking care of this patient, her husband was one of the investigators that was developing this new compound called penicillin. Mm -hmm. And they, you know, convinced them to give this guy the penicillin. And as they gave it to him, he started getting better. But in like two days, they went through the world supply of penicillin, started collecting it from his urine, crystallizing it oh. and re-administering it. And as long as they gave it, he was getting better and then he died. Oh. So that was our first experience with penicillin and Interesting. There you got it. I'm Interesting. Dropping, dropping some history on you kids today. Yeah, I actually, I feel like I have maybe heard of that once, but it's a very interesting story. Um, either way, uh, let's take kind of a trip down memory lane in terms of what was it like before 
penicillin was a thing before we had antibiotics. And so back in the day, before we had antibiotics, <laughs> let's go down memory lane, Ben. Wow. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> I, I like I our new wait soundboard. Till we get, I can't can't believe, wait till we get uh, producer Andrew back and lumberjack Andrew goes back to the woods. Uh, yeah. Well, now I now I know what the hand symbol is for uh, for that, that sound. sound effect. Thank yeah, you. There we go. It's it's a learning curve in season two. We we have a lot of new toys here. Um, but like I was saying, let's think about what hap what things were like before we had antibiotics. So just a very simple example. Let's talk about strep throat. The strep throat is streptococcus in somebody's throat. Nowadays, I give you amoxicillin, you're going to get better in about five days. If I don't give antibiotics, so again, before we had invented these antibiotics, a patient usually is going to get better in about seven to 10 days. Our immune system will be able to fight it off. But there's a small number of people where they will develop complications. And so something that we don't talk about a lot these days is rheumatic fever and rheumatic heart disease. And that's something that occurs when you have the strep throat that isn't fully treated. The strep goes to other parts of our body and causes different kinds of infections and different kinds of complications. And so I'm, I'm sure at some point in time you've heard about rheumatic heart disease and rheumatic fever, Mike. Um, but I know at least for me, I haven't really treated a patient with any of these things ever since I've graduated. Yeah, we just really don't see it anymore because we do treat a lot of these infections and it has become you know, relatively rare. Mm -hmm. And you brought up that as an example but again, dropping a little history knowledge on you, mm -hmm. the majority of the reason why we developed antibiotics to begin with was to treat wound infections. Okay. You know, skin and soft tissue, especially related to wars. Mm -hmm. uh, so back in World War One, a lot of the individuals would get uh, either fragments from shells or gunshot wounds or whatever, and they would develop very serious infections mm -hmm. and end up losing limbs and, and so forth. Yeah. And correct and so, me if I'm wrong, but most people died of infection, right? In war. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so to kind of combat that, if you will, uh, they developed the antibiotics to help with those wounds. So we really developed it for that particular reason. So against those skin pathogens. Yeah. Yeah. Which is incredibly interesting. And so that gets us to kind of this quote that I want to just briefly mention by Dr. Margaret Chan, who was the director of the gen or was director general of the Word World Health Organization. Uh, when she said this. And so she was talking about what we call a post-antibiotic era. So she said, a post-antibiotic era means, in effect, an end to modern medicine as we know it. Things as common as strep throat or a child's scraped knee could once again kill. So essentially what she's talking about is if we get to a point where there's so much antibiotic resistance that we can't use any of our antibiotics anymore, we're going to essentially regress back in time to then when people are dying of gunshot wounds in trenches where people are, you know, dying of strep throat that we can't treat, dying of common urinary tract infections. Um, obviously, it's fairly low risk, but that can start happening again. Well, and that sounds, you know, some people go, yeah, right. That's never going to happen because we'll always have new medications. Mm -hmm. Well, a couple of things with that. One, it's a reality. There have been those isolates that have been recovered from patients that are essentially resistant to all antibiotics. Mm -hmm. And then in a previous episode, we talked about drug companies and development of new medications. Antibiotics are not very profitable mm -hmm. uh, to develop because it takes a lot of money to do the clinical trials and everything like that. And then patients, when you get a new antibiotic, you really don't want to put them on the newest, greatest antibiotic mm -hmm. because you, don't, you want to save it for severe infections. And when they get infected, you want to use it for a short period of time. So there's no money in the game. 
Yep. And so really we're not developing those new antibiotics as quickly as we have in the past. Right. Yeah. And I think that's a fantastic point. And also what we were talking about before. Well, this might be a good time for my question. Well, yeah. how many antibiotics are there out there? Oh my gosh. Now that's a great question. And I do not know the actual number off the top of my head. Andrew, this would be a great thing for you to Google. Oh, nice. Perfect. So, he'll, so, while he's doing that, we're going to let Ben finish his thought. Yeah. So uh, the other thing I was going to bring up is what we, another thing we talked about in that past episode about drug manufacturing is it takes a very long time, right? Like it's going to take years. It takes maybe around like 10 years from when a drug is initially discovered to when it's actually approved by the FDA. And so while, yes, you can say, of course, we're just going to make new antibiotics, who cares? That's an incredibly expensive and a very, it's a process that takes a lot of time. And so we don't really always have that time. Do you have an All answer right. for us, Andrew? Yeah. So, I mean, we already said that uh, before bacterial infections, uh, they could kill people a lot easier than we discovered in a penicillin, 1928. Woo. That's the date on that one. Okay. And uh, now there are more than 100 antibiotics to fight the war against bacterial infections from healthgrades.com. All right. Well, but with that, you know, there might be over 100, but there's probably less than 10 that are currently widely used in the United States that I would consider like our, our strong go-to antibiotics these days. Yeah, that's probably true. There's ones that are definitely, you know, if you have a skin infection, this is the one we're going to use. If you have a urinary tract infection, this is the one we're going to use. I mean, because you always think mm -hmm. people, erythromycin, hey, that's a common antibiotic. Nope. Yep, not don't, anymore. Don't really use it anymore. Mm -hmm. It's like, hmm, take that one off. Right. Yeah. And so that actually brings us into another thing that I wanted to bring up. Uh, I was going to play a, just a quick little game with you, Mike, here. And that is I have when several medications were developed. And I want you to try and guess when resistance was first seen to them. So okay. we can kind of get an idea of, again, remember, this takes about 10 years for any of these to be created. Okay. All right. So I, I only have two for you here because I forgot to write down when the other ones had resistance. So uh, the first one is levofloxacin or Leviquin, which is an antibiotic people have probably heard of. It was developed in 1996. So when do you think we first saw resistance to Leviquin? 1997. Okay. So about a year. Do you have a guess, Andrew, when you want to chime in? Uh, 30. 30%. <laughs> 30%. <laughs> So unfortunately, that is incorrect here. But um, so the answer is actually, so it was developed in 1996. Resistance was first seen 1996, same wow. exact year. Wow. So it took less than a year for us to find bacteria that resistant to Leviquin. So not, not boding well for us so far. That's a bummer. Yeah, it really is. So, so they spent all that money to develop an antibiotic and it took less than a year to get resistance. Yep. And so luckily, you know, we're talking about resistance that was identified. That doesn't mean there was widespread resistance. Okay. Um, so you can still use Leviquin. You oftentimes will get uh, providers prescribing levofloxacin, and that's okay. Um, but there is the potential for resistance, essentially. Okay. All right. The next one and the last one I have for you is a medication called ceftaroline or tefloro, which is an intravenous antibiotic. So you might see this in a hospital. Uh, so this one was developed. Uh, it's a lot newer. It was in 2010. It was when we developed ceftaroline. So when do you think we got resistance seen from that one? You said it was developed in 2010 based off of what I heard before. I'm going the same year, 2010. Okay. Andrew? Uh, I'm going to guess we haven't had a resistance to it yet. Oh, wow. It's still working. 
the optimist. I love that. Oh, it's so cute um, when lumberjacks are so optimistic. <laughs> <laughs> we like that positivity here. So this one fared a little bit better than levofloxacin. Resistance developed one year later. So it was developed in 2010. We started seeing resistance in 2011. So we did get at least okay. a year until we saw some kind of report or case report of resistance. Now right. I'm getting really depressed. <laughs> That's well, fair. <laughs> if you got depressed with that, let me drop some historical facts on you. Mm -hmm. Okay, Andrew, you said penicillin was first developed or used in what year? 1928. 1928. Mm -hmm. So initially penicillin was developed to treat those gram-positive skin infections. Mm -hmm. All right. Mm -hmm. If it was developed and clinically used, let's say in 28, when do you think we st first started seeing resistance to penicillin? Ooh, I feel like I'm going to let Andrew say first because I think I might know the answer. Andrew? Mm, 1940. 1940. Okay. I want to say within a month of us discovering it. Resistance was actually described before the drug was started to be used in humans. Wow, really? Yeah. So bacteria are pretty darn smart. Another little historical thing. Mm -hmm. So you know the medication ciprofloxacin. Yep. It's a cousin to levofloxacin, okay. which we just talked about. And would you ever use it to treat a lung infection caused by a bacterium called streptococcus pneumoniae? Uh, generally, I would not. So for the people not in the know, ciprofloxacin doesn't generally, we don't really consider it to have great coverage of streptococcus pneumonia. So, so I would let not. me drop some knowledge on you. Mm -hmm. When it was first approved, it was widely used to treat infections caused by streptococcus pneumonia. Oh, really? However, within two years of its release, it went from 100% susceptible, that streptococcus pneumonia, mm -hmm. to 100% resistant. Wow, really? That is very interesting. And just from my perspective, when I was going through pharmacy school, we were told, do not use ciprofloxacin for strep pneumo infections. And so it's really come common knowledge that resistance is everywhere to it now Yeah, for strep pneumo specifically. Wow. Super interesting stuff. That's, I'm, I'm chocked full of the history. Yeah. I, I will be the history guy, uh, the, the source of all things old. That's great because you were around when it happened. <laughs> Go, go take your chainsaw, go out back and find a tree. Uh, <laughs> but, but only after the episode. We still yeah. got a couple things to talk about. So uh, I think the, the main point of this part of the discussion was it takes years and years to make new drugs. And we see resistance within a year most of the time, if not earlier than that. And so we really can't rely on new drugs coming out to fix this resistance problem that we have. So we got to do something else. So... In order to kind of think about that, we want to think about why resistance occurs in the first place. And we talked about how just using antibiotics, exposing bacteria to antibiotics can cause resistance to occur. And so that leads into the other point where we want to use antibiotics for appropriate things, bacterial infections, but we want to avoid them for inappropriate things. So things like viral infections, things that aren't real infections, like a heart failure exacerbation, something like that. So let's talk a little bit about inappropriate antibiotic use. So I have another question for you guys, and I'll let Andrew go first because you might know the answer to this one, Mike. About how many antibiotic prescriptions in the United States, what percentage do you think are inappropriate? Ooh, maybe if you had to guess. 50%. Okay, 50%. What are your thoughts, Mike? So it depends on how you define inappropriate. In my mind, you know, mm -hmm. not warranted because they're being treated for something that doesn't need a uh, antibiotic, I'd say probably about 30%, mm -hmm. as opposed to if they're then dosed appropriately and duration and stuff like that, then that's upper to 
Yep. So that's exactly right. So about 30% of people get an antibiotic that don't need one. So it's something like a heart failure exacerbation. So not an infection that we're giving you an antibiotic for. And then yes, if you're talking about, is it the correct dose, the correct amount of time, probably about 50% of those are incorrect, um, which is incredibly interesting. I remember that we would go to the doctor and we would almost always get an antibiotic if we had an ear infection. But mm-hmm. now with our kids, they've really pulled back on that. So I, hopefully the message is getting out, right? That we can't overuse these antibiotics. Yeah, for sure. And that's something that we're going to get into in a moment called antimicrobial stewardship. Uh, but I did want to ask you guys, have you ever run into this scenario before? So it sounds like we're getting better at not using antibiotics for everything, which is good. But how many times have you guys had a situation where you or, you know, a loved one you're taking to the doctor's office and they look at your, you know, the person that's being evaluated and they say, I don't really think this is an infection, but I'm going to give you this antibiotic just to be safe or just in case. Have you guys ever ran into that? Oh, yeah. Yep. I have not specifically. My wife does most of the doctor's visits with the kids. So you're talking from a position of ignorance right now. Exactly. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Yeah. And thanks, Lumberjack. You you got me back. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, that's something that comes up, right? Because one thing that Mike mentioned a little bit earlier is that these medications don't have a lot of side effects. So oftentimes we think maybe this is a bacterial infection, so maybe it'll help and low risk of side effects. So it's probably not going to hurt you. So I'm just going to give you an antibiotic just in case maybe there is a little bit of bacteria in there. And and getting back to your example of the sore throat, Mm -hmm. you know, most episodes of sore throat, especially in kids, are not caused by bacteria mm-hmm. that you would give an antibiotic for. In fact, only probably about 15, maybe up to 30% of those cases of sore throat are actually caused by, you know, the organism that we usually treat, you know, for with strep throat. Yeah. The rest are going to be viruses, which we really have no impact on. And unless people are looking to differentiate between bacterial and non-bacterial and just give antibiotics, then they're going to be overusing the antibiotics all the time. Yeah, for sure. And so that is a a fantastic point is sometimes we have these things like a sore throat, which could be a virus or a bacteria. And so our physicians might say, "Eh, I think it's a virus, but maybe it's a bacteria. So I'm just going to give you this antibiotic just to be safe. And again, that's something we want to try and avoid this inappropriate kind of use of antibiotics. So should we talk back to our doctors and say, no, I think I'm going to try to go without it. Well, that's that's a fantastic question. And I think one thing we need to do a better job just as a society is one thing that we, you know, teach students in school, which is kind of collaboration with our patients, shared decision making. And so if you're talking to your physician and they say that, you know, I'm I'm gonna give you one just in case, it's okay to ask some questions. You can say things like, Well, if you don't think it's a bacterial infection, do I really need an antibiotic? I thought it was just like shared liability. Like when my kids were born, they asked if I wanted to cut the umbilical cord. I go, like, heck no, I don't want to cut the umbilical cord. You went to school for this. Or if something goes wrong, you just want to blame it on me. Um, is, that, is that kind of the... It's, it's not like that at all, actually, Mike. But thank you for asking. <laughs> it's always good to ask questions, like we just said. That was probably not a question Ben was thinking. <laughs> it was not, not at all. But I haven't had kids. So maybe when I have kids at some point, that will be a question I have. Um, so yes, we want to try and avoid those situations. And it's okay to have those conversations with your physician, for sure. And, and you're right. Most mm-hmm. physicians will actually welcome that because there's also this belief sometimes with the prescribers that people are there because they're demanding an antibiotic. They want that antibiotic. They think the only way they'll get better is if they get an antibiotic. And if you're asking questions and saying, is this the best thing for me? Should I fill it right away? That will help the, the prescriber then be truthful and say, well, you know what? I really don't think this is a bacterial infection. I really don't think you need an antibiotic. And they'll feel better about that decision. 
Yeah, for sure. And so that actually dovetails perfectly into the next thing I wanted to talk about, Mike, which is what are the common reasons that our providers prescribe antibiotics inappropriately? And so there have been a lot of surveys, a lot of kind of questionnaires being sent out to ask providers why it is that you're prescribing antibiotic um, when you know it's not really necessary. And so I'm just going to list a couple of those reasons. And so one of them is what you mentioned, Mike, which is pressure from patients or a a perceived perception for, or a perceived pressure from patients. So for example, you come into the physician's office and the physician thinks, oh man, this person's going to want me to write them an antibiotic. I just know they are. And so I'm going to give that as like an offer to them of like, I can give you an antibiotic if you want me to, um, because I think that's what the patient wants me to do. And they want to keep the patient happy. So they mm-hmm. keep coming back. Yeah. So they have that relationship. Right. Yeah. And I mean, our physicians, our PAs or NPs, we all like them, right? They like us. We have good, positive relationships they don't, with they them. They don't like me. They don't like Mike. <laughs> Andrew, do your physician like you and your family? Think? <laughs> yes. <definitely>. Okay. <laughs> That's good. That's they good. want us to keep coming back. Perfect. So Mike is the outlier here, which, I, which makes I've sense. I've been fired. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so that perceived that I want to keep my patient happy. I want them to come back to me. I want them to feel like I'm helping them. Which is crazy because, you know, when I go to the doctor with a cold or something like that, mm-hmm. I don't necessarily want an antibiotic. I just want to feel better. Right. And if I don't have to take anything and he just says, go home, take a nap, that's actually what I'm looking for. Right. Yeah. And I think a lot of times people think they need an antibiotic. They're like, I have a sore throat in the past. People have given me antibiotics for this. So that's what I'm expecting. And so really, if a physician, PANP can just explain to people like, hey, this is actually a virus. Me giving you this antibiotic isn't going to help you. And you might actually see some side effects then a lot of patients might say, okay, I actually don't want this now that you've explained to me both sides of the coin there. But it, but it's also a, you know, a, a narrow line to walk because you don't want to scare them from not taking antibiotics mm-hmm. in the future when they need them. So you yep. got to kind of walk the, the risks and benefits. Yeah. It turns out being a physician is kind of hard. You guys, can you imagine? No. (laughs) Yes, I can't either. Um, We are definitely pharmacists here. Um, Okay. So there's kind of that patient pressure aspect of things. Other things that are sometimes brought up is, does my doctor just not know how to treat me? Do they just not know what's recommended? And usually that's not the case. So most information we have is that physicians know what they're doing. NPs know what they're doing. PAs know what they're doing. There's some other reason they're giving antibiotics. And so usually that's not the problem. It's not an education piece in that regard. Um, The other thing that comes up is it's, as I just mentioned, really hard to be a physician. Our physicians now are seeing more patients every day than they ever have. Um, I've been to some clinician offices where every 15 minutes, the physician is seeing a new patient. They're being roomed and kind of, you know, had their blood pressure taken by an assistant. Then the physician comes in, they have 15 minutes to talk to the patient, find out what's wrong with them, answer any questions that they have, prescribe them medications, look at their labs, all of that different stuff in 15 minutes. You know, and honestly, that's a long time because in the clinic I used to work in, it was every eight minutes that they were scheduled to see. And so it was tough to have those lengthy discussions because Mm -hmm. then you fall behind. Yep, exactly right. And then the physician might be there for five extra hours afterwards, writing notes and stuff like that. So those are some of the reasons why we see antibiotic overuse. And that's, you know, just one thing that I wanted to bring up because if we're trying to prevent antibiotic overuse, we want to know why it's happening in the first place. Okay. So Luckily, it's not all gloom and doom. You know, there is this risk for antibiotic overuse, risk of antibiotic resistance. But as Andrew alluded to, we're, we're getting better at it. We know this is a problem now and we're working to fix it. 
And so there's a couple of kind of high name societies and people that are helping us along the way. So I mentioned a little bit earlier about the CDC and they put out this threat report that is describing resistant antibi or resistant bacteria and fungi and stuff like that. And so they have a lot of guidance that they are giving physicians, they're giving hospitals on how to do a good job at reducing inappropriate antibiotic use. And that's something that we call antimicrobial stewardship. So making sure the antibiotics we use are appropriate and that we aren't inappropriately giving antibiotics when we don't need to. So luckily we have some good backing uh, through the CDC. Also, we have the Joint Commission. So the Joint Commission is essentially a accrediting body that makes sure hospitals are doing what they're supposed to be doing. And so the Joint Commission says all hospitals need to have an antimicrobial stewardship program. That's a requirement to be accredited. It's also uh, a requirement now where there's performance measures for doctor's offices and clinics to mm -hmm. uh, have some antimicrobial stewardship um, activities as well. Yeah, for sure. That was just a couple of years ago. They made it so outpatient clinics also need to report this. Oh, stuff. you mean you were practicing a couple of years ago? You remember that? I actually was, believe it or not. Six years ago, I started practicing. Um, but yeah, the last thing I want to bring up is that luckily for us, this is actually a bipartisan issue too. So oftentimes things can get mixed up in politics. One side wants one thing, one side wants the other. So President Obama back in 2017 actually signed an executive, or sorry, 2014 for uh, President Obama. And he signed an executive order saying that this is a problem and putting funding towards this. Then in 2017, President Trump at that time also renewed that through executive order. So this is something that Democrats and Republicans luckily are agreeing upon, which is really nice. Um, okay, so those are kind of the big name people or the big name organizations that are trying to help us out with this. There's also a lot of people that are kind of boots on the ground working to do this stewardship work. So you guys may remember back in season one, we interviewed uh, someone that I work with, Derek Vanderhorst, who is an infectious disease pharmacist. And that's a huge part of his job. Every single day, he reviews the antibiotics that are being used in his hospital. And he's looking to see, are these things appropriate or not? And also, sometimes he catches things like, oh, this patient needs to be on an antibiotic. And so he'll recommend those things as well, because it's wow. not all stopping it. I mean, so it sounds like, you know, hospitals and stuff are spending a lot of money to put together these stewardship teams, mm -hmm. which, you know, at, at, at face value, seems like it would just be really expensive and not worth it. But for all the value that they bring in terms of reducing exposures, mm -hmm. slowing the risk of resistance, slowing side effects and stuff like that, it sounds like it makes financial sense to do that. Yeah. And there have been some reports out there that look into that because, you know, you have to pay a pharmacist or a physician or somebody like that to do this work. But again, some of our antibiotics are pretty expensive. And so you might be able to show cost savings to offset the cost of a pharmacist. If I can prevent, you know, 20 doses of this really expensive medication a month, that pays for my position essentially. Or you use the expensive antibiotic and it works better and faster. So mm -hmm. the patient leaves the hospital. So the -hmm. hospital saves money from doing that. Yeah, for sure. And so there's multiple different ways we can show cost saving initiatives for okay. sure. For sure. Um, okay. And so I really wanted to just leave us on that kind of positive note. You know, there is the risk for really bad stuff to happen in the future, but luckily we're doing a pretty good job right now of trying to prevent that. With that said, there's still a lot more work to be done, but we're heading in the right direction, which is really nice. Excellent. Mm -hmm. So before we close up, I just want to you know tell our listeners, please email us, contact us um, about your favorite donut. Uh, <laughs> we would like to, to clear up this cream, white cream nonsense. And then also the revelation that uh, young Ben thinks turkey bacon is actually bacon is very disturbing to me. 
Uh, so if you'd like to comment on that, please, again, send us uh, an email or a link on Facebook or something, the Twittergram or whatever this uh, social media nonsense is, man. Tell them how to get in touch with us. Uh, I appreciate the help with the plugs, Mike. Uh, but yes, you can get in contact with us. We are at The Health Deli on Twitter. We are The Health Deli on Facebook. And we are The Health Deli at Ferris, spelled F-E-R-R-I-S, dot E-D-U, if you would like to send us an email and tell us why turkey bacon is delicious. We are also The Health Deli at CustardFilledLongJohns.com. <laughs> If you email that, you'll you own that domain. Do you know how to make a website, Mike? <laughs> it's a website. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, everybody, for joining us again, and we hope you have a great rest of your day. Thanks for stopping by the Health Deli to sample some of our wares. We're open 24-7 on Facebook and Twitter at The Health Deli, or visit thehealthdeli.com to send us a question or find any of our locations. Please come again. We will be regularly stocking the shelves with fresh content and new wellness specials. As always, we want to give a special thank you to Andrew Tingley and the crew at Ferris State University's television and digital media production program. Until next time, so long from the Health Deli, where the topics are tasty, the takes are fresh, and the discussion is free.